Well, welcome all to tonight's discussion on the topic, China in an Unstable World, Views from Beijing. I'm Professor Gary Smith, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Global Engagement at Deakin University, and it's my pleasure to introduce tonight briefly. I wish to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land in which we're gathered here today. We pay our respect to local people for allowing us to have our gathering on their land and to their elders, past, present and future. Deakin and La Trobe Universities, in collaboration with the Foundation for Australian Studies in China, have been working together to present this event to members of the public. There's little doubt that we often see the pattern of world politics and areas of instability through US and European perspectives, and I think it will be most informative for us tonight to hear from three senior Chinese scholars some views, and not necessarily the view from Beijing. From Beijing. We've got three very distinguished panellists presenting to us. Um, Professor Wang Jizhe, President International and Strategic Studies Institute, Peking University. We have Professor Yan Shui Tang, Dean of the Institute of Modern International Relations at Tsinghua University. And we have Professor Jia Qingguo, Dean of the School of International Studies at Peking University. So welcome to you all. We don't need to clap our chair, Professor Nick Bisley, is Executive Director of La Trobe Asia and Professor of International Relations at La Trobe, Bisley, Trobe University. Professor Bisley will further introduce our guests from Beijing and will run the session. And I'd just like to make special acknowledgement uh, uh, to Professor Pan Chengjing for his work uh, with Professor Bisley in bringing this event to fruition and to others who've helped organise it. So over to you, Nick. Thanks, Gary. <coughs> Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the China in an Unstable World, our public forum exploring Chinese perspectives on its place, on China's place in the world. My name is Nick Bisley, and I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Uh, as Gary mentioned, tonight's program has been a joint effort of my team and Deakin University, led by uh, Cheng Jinpan, who's also acting as photographer. Uh, uh, tonight's event has been made possible by the support of both our institutions as well as the generosity of the Foundation for Australian Studies in China, or FASIC. China's emergence over the past 30 years is, without question, the most important development in international politics. Its transformation from being an inwardly focused country that struggled to feed itself to the second largest economy in the world and the global economy's most important engine for growth is literally staggering. It has involved history's greatest achievement in human development, as hundreds of millions of people have had their life chances inestimably improved within a generation, a feat of speed and scale hitherto unparalleled. And with this growing prosperity has come a much greater role in international affairs for the People's Republic, both in its immediate region as well as the globe more broadly. If one thinks of any major international issue, from nuclear security to climate change, from reform of the international financial institutions to tackling cybercrime, a meaningful response will require China's involvement. For Australia, China is a particularly important country. It has become by a considerable margin our largest trading partner, and as its investment in Australia grows, it is likely to be our most important economic partner overall within five years. Yet the country's economic alignment with China sits somewhat uneasily with our strategic and security policy, which has, over the past 15 years, become much more tightly linked to Washington. The preeminent issue confronting international policymakers in Canberra 
is working out just how Australia can chart a successful course in a region in which the US and China have an increasingly rancorous relationship. One of the most significant challenges facing scholars, policymakers, and indeed all interested parties who engage with China lies in being able to see the world from Beijing's eyes. For Australia, this is especially important as we have never had as our top economic partner a country that was not politically, culturally, or strategically familiar. What does China want from the international system? How does it perceive the prevailing international order? Why does it act in the way that it does? And what ideas shape how China acts on the global stage? What can we expect from China in the coming years? The purpose of today's public forum is to explore these issues and to think through how China sees a world that is more unstable than it has been geopolitically and economically for decades. And we are extremely fortunate to have three of China's very best foreign policy scholars to lead our discussion. Indeed, one could not hope for a better qualified, interesting and engaging group of scholars to reflect on these issues. Not only are they extremely eminent in their field, they also reflect the diversity of views that exist within China on its international relations, a fact often overlooked by many observers who assume a monolithic People's Republic foreign policy machine. I'll briefly introduce our panellists, although Gary has stolen my thunder, not for the first time, uh, in doing so. They will then each speak for about 10 minutes in the order that I introduce them, and then we'll have question and answer. Uh, I will try to police their time in the same way Xi Jinping has pursued his tigers and flies policy to ensure that we have plenty of time for discussion. Um, speaking first, at the end of the uh, uh, desk is Professor Wang Jizhe. As Gary mentioned, he is the president of the Institute of International and Strategic Studies at Peking University and was formerly the dean of Beida's School of International Studies. Speaking second, Professor Yan Tong, who is the dean of the Institute of Modern International Relations at Tsinghua University, and he's also the editor-in-chief of the Chinese Journal of International Politics, published by Oxford University Press. Speaking third will be Professor Jia Jingwo. Uh, he's dean of the School of International Studies at Peking University, and he's also a member of the Standing Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee of the National Committee of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. So that's it from me. I, you, I will throw this directly to Professor Wang, and then the panel will speak, and then we'll take questions. Professor Wang, thank you. Thank you very much, Professor uh, Bisley, for your introduction. And uh, I'm also very much indebted to uh, La Beijing and uh, Deakin University and other partners for making this forum possible. Um, my topic actually is uh, China and international order. Um, and uh, we are actually quite pleased with the title of this forum, which is China in an, an unstable world. That means China is stable and the world is unstable. <laughs> but in, in what way is the world unstable? That is a question I ask myself. Uh, but to me, I think the international order is quite stable at this moment as compared to seven year, 70 years ago or even... Um, 30 years ago. But 
there are a lot of problems we are faced with today. For instance, uh, ter terrorism and uh, illegal immigration, climate change, a lot of in the issues in the global governance. Uh, but I think, you know, if you look at the current international players, especially the major powers, they are basically stable, uh, and, and their relationships are also basically stable. They are not going to fight a, a major war uh, between themselves. Uh, I will touch upon the U.S.-China relationship, but basically the world is stable. Uh, especially international, major international players are stable and their relationships are generally stable. What is my definition of international order? I will say, well, basically, uh, uh, who are the major players in the world and what are their relationships? And then what are the rules uh, among them on the, the games of the rule? But the first question to me is, what is China? Is China, uh, is this, this seems to be a non-issue. But there are three images of China that are relevant to our international order discussion today. Um, the first image is China is a sovereign state. The PRC, the People's Republic of China, we often say there is only one China in the world that, that is represented by the People's Republic of China. But we have some other... Uh, uh, people in China who uh, are not in the, the PRC's um, uh, political rule. Uh, I'm talking about Taiwan. Uh, and then we also have special regions like uh, Hong Kong and, and the Macau. But basically, we are talking about the sovereign China, which is the PRC. Then the second image about China is China is a uh, Civilization, or what I call civilizational China, or political, uh, or, or, or cultural China, or historical China. Because what is believed in China is that China is a continuous, almost the only continuous civilization in the world. So we talk about Asian China, uh, or, or the South China Sea has been Chinese uh, territory since ancient times. And the third image is uh, what I call ethnic China, or uh, uh, I, I don't use, want to use the, the word racial, but it is ethnic China means in Chinese and, uh, uh, as, a, as a nation, not simply as a state, but as a nation, including uh, those who are living abroad as, as PR citizens or not. But that is quite complicated, as we discussed uh, with some colleagues this morning. So uh, we, when we, we talk about China and international order, we should understand that there are very different understandings uh, of this entity, of this great uh, nation. And what is my definition of international order? as I just said, uh, uh, great players and uh, their relationships and, and finally the rules of the game. And China's attitude toward the international order has uh, under, undergone some subtle changes in the last uh, few decades. Originally, China said, I mean, the PRC government declared that China wanted to uh, establish a, a new international and economic and political order. Uh, 
that uh, slogan, that concept uh, existed until uh, about uh, 10 to 15 years ago. And then the Chinese official document uh, changed the tone a little bit, saying uh, China wants to push the existing international order into a more just, more reasonable direction, meaning that the international order is basically conducive to China's development and national sovereignty. Uh, I don't have time to explain why uh, the subtle changes uh, happen, but the Chinese leadership now declares very often that China is a beneficiary of the, especially a beneficiary of the international order, and China is also a facilitator, a contributor of the international order, meaning China wants to join other countries, including the United States, Western countries, developing countries, in maintaining the present international order. But China wants to rise up. Uh, so China is a rising power. But if we look at the, some other powers, uh, they are not as, uh, uh, rising as rapidly as China. Or some, some countries are you know, just uh, moving flat. Uh, the United States is still rising in some sense. But what about Japan? What about Europe? What about uh, Russia? Uh, they are not necessarily rising powers. But we can predict that in the near future, the power relationship or the power balance among great powers may not change rapidly. The only ex exception is China itself. It's, it's China will continue to rise up, but not as fast as the last two decades or so. Uh, because it, there are more and more economic uh, uh, set, you know, obstacles, or, and, and, and you know, uh, uh, and we are faced with an aging, aging population and environmental uh, degradation, and so on and so forth. So the rise of China may continue, but there are also some new issues we are faced with. And so that is why China needs the outside world to promote its, its, own, its economy, to, to uh, safeguard its national sovereignty, and so on. So China needs a peaceful world. But then the question is, does China welcome the game, uh, rules of the game, the second part of the international order? I should say, well, uh, since, uh, the, since, since, ref since reform, China has w welcomed and accepted most rules of the game. If we could divide international rules into four parts, then China is very much uh, influenced by and also interested in joining the existing international economic order. Uh, IMF World Bank and China has established its own, uh, China initiated and helped by others, uh, joined by others, the AIIB or Asian Infra Infrastructure Develop Investment Bank. Uh, and China is uh, playing a, a more active role in existing international financial uh, organizations like uh, IMF and World Bank. But China is not totally satisfied with 
all these rules because uh, uh, China has not enough voting power in some of the organizations. And China's, you know, when China grows stronger, it may also try to revise some of the rules that are not totally satisfactory. Uh, but basically, China welcomes the international uh, economic order. And the non-traditional security issues like climate change, uh, public health worldwide, and, and so on and so forth, and outer space, uh, cybersecurity, China joins other countries in, uh, in uh, not only accepting the rules, but also uh, stabilizing the rules and uh, creating some new rules because you no know, things like climate change and, uh, and, and, and sub cyber security are uh, basically uh, uh, issues that, are, that, you, that are, have many variations uh, for other countries to follow. So China is, is joining other countries in uh, dealing with, with those uh, global uh, uh, governance issues or what we call non-traditional security issues. But if we moved our attention to security order, and I think also China is very much abiding by the, the rules like non nuclear non-proliferation, nuclear safety, and so on and so forth, arms control included. But China has reservations about certain rules like the, the you know, US-led military alliances uh, in our region, I mean, e in East Asia. And China ha and the United States have different rules they emphasize over the South China Sea debate and over uh, some of the territorial disputes China has with other countries. And uh, on political order, um, I think China wants to have a distinctive political system at home uh, China declares, declares very strongly that uh, it does not accept uh, what is called in the West universal values, uh, although China has its own uh, definition of democracy and human rights and other things. And this is basically uh, what I see as China's attitude. Finally, I want to say, well, when we talk about China and international order, especially China and the United States in the existing international order, we are actually talking about two orders. The first is China's domestic order we want to maintain, uh, led by the Communist Party of China. Uh, and the principle there is China doesn't uh, welcome foreign interventions. Uh, China will go its own way. Uh, and the international order, sometimes we say the international order maintained by Western countries, especially in the United States, so some Western scholar would call it, uh, it uh, a liberal order. We don't accept that kind of uh, description. We say the international order rather than the liberal international order. But we have to recognize that uh, the United States is playing a very special role with other uh, Western countries in, in uh, setting some of the rules. And my final point is that if you look at the international order and China comparative with the Chinese domestic order, you'll see some contradictions. Uh, and we should accommodate 
with each other. I mean, China and, and uh, its neighboring countries and China and the United States should accommodate each other in maintaining this international order. Other countries should, fall, should, should, uh, should welcome China, uh, you know, a stable China, a prosperous China, and China welcomes the uh, strengthening of the existing international order. We don't call it uh, led by the United States or led by West countries. Uh, we say that we join other countries, including developing countries and developed countries, in maintaining uh, this international order to make the world more stable rather than unstable. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Wang. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. And uh, just now, Professor Wang uh, gave you the uh, view about China's uh, uh, idea or their uh, opinion about uh, world order. I want to uh, focus on <clears throat> one specific thing, namely the one belt and one road. And it uh, seems to me and there's a lot of uh, discussion and, uh, in the media about uh, what is a one bad, one road. And many people su suppose that's China's uh, foreign uh, strategy. And someone suggests that this is a strategy adopted by Chinese government and like the Marshall Plan uh, dealing with uh, uh, Europe, but now this time used for the, uh, globally. Well, actually, I think the one by one road is not a pre-carefully designed strategy by the government. It's just a, actually only a concept. <clears throat> and you find, if you read Chinese carefully, you find that this uh, one by one road, on the one hand, defined as a strategy, or the term <coughs> is a strategy uh, domestically. And on the other hand, whenever this idea and uh, raised to the foreigners or the international community, it always like a proposal instead of a strategy. The difference between the proposal and the strategy has uh, very different uh, 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 implications. And the first one means the uh, proposal means that what China suggests and uh, to the others, and this really heavily rely on the cooperation from the uh, foreign countries. But if, if it is defined as the strategy, that means uh, the Chinese government would unilaterally and push forward this uh, project. And <clears throat> why there's a different definition about a one belt, one road? From my understanding, from the very, very beginning, one belt, one road is not a it's not carefully designed as a strategy, but it's just an idea suggested by Chinese government. And uh, first, this idea only uh, talking about the possibility to develop some uh, economic and uh, strategic cooperation with uh, Central Asia countries. So that's why they're talking about a Silk Route. The Silk Route in the ancient time is only connect China with the Central Asia rather than this, uh, go through, uh, went through the Central Asia to the Europe. It's not that long. So this idea actually started or from the relationship between China and the Central Asia. And then they found that they can extend this uh, uh, economic relationship and from the Central Asia to Europe. And then they started talking about the possibility to uh, go through this uh, <coughs> uh, circle route to the Germany. Then 
we find the problem is that the, uh, between this uh, Central Asia and the Germany, there's Russia. How can you get this uh, project and uh, implement it without Russian's participation? And so also Russia shows their uh, very, very negative attitudes toward this idea of a one, uh, one belt. And so the, through the negotiation and, uh, and the finally both sides agreed with each other. Okay, Russia should be welcomed to join this uh, project if this project can be carried out. And then after the Russian and uh, theoretically agreed to join this uh, one belt, uh, one, uh, one belt uh, project and then some uh, uh, Middle East countries, uh, how far this uh, cooperation can extend it. And then you noted that it's extended to uh, Iran and then go to the Saudi Arabia. Well, since this kind of idea has spread all, uh, 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 over from the Central Asia to the Europe and to the, <clears throat> to the Middle East, and then the North African countries said, hey, can China extend this cooperation through the Middle East to the uh, 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 Africa? Well, for China said, okay, in the ancient time, we do have this kind of maritime relationship and by Zhenghe in Ming Dynasty and to uh, uh, East Asian countries. Well, Kenya is very happy with that. Kenya said, okay, we are the end, we are very, very south end of the Silk Route. So East Asian country becomes a part of it. And by, by now, and the more some countries develop interest in that because China, Abraham reported that China is going to uh, use its foreign currency to support all of these uh, projects. And so then Chinese government also want to and uh, spend this program, and then we started the so-called maritime uh, silk uh, route. Now, now we have one belt, one route. That's a, the term is uh, the belt of the silk uh, uh, route and the uh, maritime silk route. So when the East Asian countries join this, and the Indian and the Pakistan ask the question, what's the real, uh, uh, what, how much they can involved in this issue? And then China said, okay, if the South Asian countries have interest in this, and you're welcomed, and then they develop a new concept, it's called the China, India, Myanmar, and uh, Bangladesh corridor. And then the Pakistan said, hey, hey, I'm the very important country in South Asia. China, okay, we established another corridor. It's called the Corridor of China-Pakistan. Now we have a one belt, one screwed, two corridors. <laughs> and it still didn't stop. It continued to spread uh, uh, around. And then when our leader visited the, uh, uh, the, the, the UK and the British leader said, hey, since you already expanded the uh, Silk Route to Germany, can you cross the, uh, cross the, uh, across the uh, uh, street and come to our islands? Chinese leader said, okay, fine, if you want it. Okay, so we, we extended it to the very, very uh, western uh, uh, part, to the, uh, to the UK. It's called that we developed the, the corridor, no, no, the, uh, the, belt, the one belt cooperation is no longer including the uh, infrastructure, but also including financial uh, uh, system or financial cooperation. Well, now we have a very important country and a, a 
becomes very sus uh, uh, suspicious about this plan. Hey, what does China want to do? And China seemed to we try to control the world through the one belt, one road. And then when our leader visit the US try to reduce the Americans' suspicions, and China said, oh, we welcome you to join this one belt, one road. Oh, Americans said, okay, since you welcome me, I will consider whether I do it or not. Now, no matter US agree or not, but then they reach agreement between the Chinese companies and the American companies to set up, sign the contract to build up the uh, uh, high-speed road, uh, a railway from the Los Angeles to the Las Vegas. And it seemed to me the most, of the, the, the faster the, the implemented project is not in any uh, area, but in the United States of this one bad one road. And uh, when there's a, <clears throat> So uh, uh, the summit of the BRICS held in the uh, South Africa, and South Africa required to uh, join this uh, program. So I don't think our government very frankly rejected the requirement. We cannot require anyone to join the one bed, one road. So when South Africa claimed that they become the part of the one bed, one road, now we, we have only two places have not covered in the, uh, the, the, the whole world. And uh, I have not heard that uh, whether Australian joined the one battle one road, and then the Latin American have not formally announced they are part of this program. What I want to say, and uh, all of this change means that no one knows what it is. <laughs> and uh, this thing is uh, started from a concept, and then it's just a uh, snowball. It's rolling bigger and bigger, and uh, what it. What it will be finally, I doubt anyone know, uh, knows it. Okay, so I just use this to <clears throat> uh, make a one argument. And when people, now there are a lot of PhD students, uh, foreign PhD students uh, uh, come to China, want to do the research on what on China's foreign policy making. They try to understand how China making the foreign policy and what China's foreign policy is and what's the goal of these foreign policies. Actually, here I want to argue that China's foreign policy, the, the, the policy making in China is not only guided by one principle. No, that's not true. All of the foreign policies and uh, made through one pro, uh, approach or one pro, uh, procedure. No, that's not true. Generally speaking, in China, the foreign policy can be made by three, uh, in three uh, different uh, uh, directions. And the first is the goal-oriented policy making. That means that they have a very specific goal, and then they make the policy, for instance, and they, are, they, they think we want to build, the, uh, build some islands in the South China Sea, and then they study how can we do it. This is a goal-oriented policy. And the, some, uh, some foreign policy made what? Guided by the principles. That means uh, the principle generally decided what policy will be adopted, like the non-proliferation of the nuclear weapons. And this policy, generally speaking, and decided, uh, uh, made by this principle. The third one is like the one belt, one road. It's a concept-oriented policy making. They have a concept, and no one knows what the concept is, what, what it is. And then they have concept first, and then have definitely explanation, and then have the, uh, 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 all kinds of discussion. And finally, possibly, they can reach a definition, maybe not. 
For instance, now we raise another two concepts. One is the community of destiny. And now it becomes a world community of the common destiny. And the other is a new, internet, new type of international relations. And by now, I have not seen anyone to define the difference between the new type of international relations and the old type of uh, international relations. And I doubt anyone can tell what's the difference they are and uh, what type of relationship uh, affiliated with the uh, old, old type of international relations, what kind of relations affiliated with the uh, new, uh, new type of relations. And we have relations with uh, uh, over 160 countries and there are, there are various uh, you know, uh, in many uh, different aspects, but no one can make clearly uh, whether our relationship with the U.S. new type or old type, our relationship with Russia, with Japan, with the Philippines, with Australia, and which one is the new type, which is the old type, no one knows. But then we do have the clear concept. We have the new type of international relations. So now I want to say China is a country not that democratic like this country, but China is a very pluralistic. Okay, and uh, I, I'm finished just uh, uh, by uh, one thing I'm co uh, going to uh, say. Before we came, and uh, Professor Wang found that, hey, there's a very interesting statue, and have a, a warrior fight against the dragon, right? Uh, just in front of the gate of the library. And uh, dragon is the China's national animal. It represents the character of the China. And actually, there's no dragon. There's no real animal like that. It's a combination of all animals. What does it mean? It means that China is a kind of a combination of everything. And so the, in China, you can find all kinds of ideas, all kinds of arguments. So you can hardly to define anything said that this is a very typical Chinese. It's very difficult. And all foreigners can find some similarities of your culture. And also you find, hey, Chinese culture definitely are different from ours. So this is a, 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 that's my understanding about China's culture. Come to the China's foreign policy same. The foreign policy is making by different principles. That's really dependent on the different issue rather than all the foreign policies guided by one principle. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Yan. Uh, Professor Jia. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much. It's great uh, to be back in uh, Melbourne. And uh, thanks to uh, uh, Professor Weasley and uh, Professor Pan uh, for their invitation. And thanks also to the two uh, institutions, the Deacons and the Latrobe Universities. Uh, the title of Today's uh, talk is, uh, uh, I mean, uh, today's uh, 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 event is uh, China and the unstable world. Uh, Professor Wang talked about the stable aspect. <laughs> I'll talk about the unstable aspect. Uh, U.S. election and, uh, and China-U.S. relations. Uh, to many Americans, uh, this presidential election is both embarrassing <laughs> and worrisome. Embarrassing because you have a candidate named Donald Trump <laughs> rather than Jeb Bush or somebody else. Moreover, 
Donald Trump appears to be winning the public, uh, Republican elect, uh, nomination. Now, some people even predict that he has a real chance to get into the White House. Worrisome because given what Donald Trump has said, or people's impression of what Donald Trump has said on domestic and international issues, some believe that he will lead the U.S. into a historical disaster, and indeed lead the world into a historical disaster. On this issue, Chinese, of course, are neither that embarrassed or nor worried. The question is, should we worry about Donald Trump? Which candidate is good for China and China-U.S. relations? In the next few minutes, I will share with you some of my thoughts on this issue. Uh, should we worry about Donald Trump? I don't think so. Okay. Many people's first reaction is, of course we should worry about him. Uh, however, such judgments, it seems to me, reflects uh, more people's sentiments rather than care for political calculation. Look at what he has said so far. He is for death penalty. He is for tougher measures to control illegal immigration, building a wall, among other things, along the U.S.-Mexican border and make the Mexicans pay for it. And he is for lowering tax rates for American companies to increase their competitiveness. He is opposed to lifting the minimum wage because of fear of losing jobs for the American workers. He's opposed to the Iran uh, nuclear deal. Uh, he thinks uh, President Obama gave, too much, gave in too much. And he wants to get tough on China. Who doesn't in the U.S.? And seventh, he thinks that the D DPP is a bad deal. I think some Chinese also think so. And he wants to spend less money on defense and build a stronger military, U.S. military force by making the military spend money more, wi more wisely. Are these views particularly threatening? I don't think so. Judging by Chinese standards, Trump is by no means a dangerous guy. He doesn't even qualify as a dissident. He's not opposed to the Constitution, right? He's not opposed to the U.S. political system. He hasn't advocated that the U.S. should, uh, should take a socialist road. For the international community, he hasn't argued for U.S. territorial expansion. Instead, he wants to build a great wall along the U.S. border. That's supposed to be a pacifist approach. Even on China, he said he loves China, although he doesn't like certain aspects of Chinese policies. Should we be alarmed about Donald Trump? I'm not sure. I think no. His biggest problems appears is the way he talks full of exaggeration and sensationalism. When it comes to China, for example, he said, China is killing us. He said, you have a problem with ISIS. 
you have a bigger problem with China. This should be easy to fix, I mean, to be too sensational and uh, exaggerating. Just get him a good speechwriter. He'll do much better. Having said this, however, if I were asked to choose between him and the other most popular and most promising candidate, uh, Hillary Clinton, I would have opted for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Why? Not because uh, I'm a great fan of her. Uh, I, I certainly uh, think she's a great person. But because she's a candidate of the incumbent party. If you carefully study the history of US election and China-US relations, I think you will agree with me. I prefer the incumbent party candidate for three reasons. First, the nature of the election politics. Second, the problem of China debate uh, with China policy in the US presidential elections. Third, the impact of US political succession on China-US relations. First, the election of the incumbent party candidate is preferable because of the nature of the election politics. In seeking for power in, to the White House, the opposition party candidate invariably feels necess the necessity to condemn uh, the incumbent party's policies, including its China policy. It's necessary because often the opposition does, does see things from a different perspective and have genuine policy differences. Moreover, it is necessary because as an opposition party candidate, if you say you agree with the incumbent party's policies, there is no point for people to uh, elect you to the White House in the first place. So you have, you have to be different. Criticism alone, of course, is not enough. As the opposition party's candidate, you need to present your own policy preferences and argue why they are infinitely better than the existing policies. And you promise to the electorate that if you get elected, you are going to change the existing policies and implement those of your own. Once elected to the White House, then you're obliged to make policy changes because you want to maintain the support of your electorate by being consistent. Such policy changes are welcome if the existing policies really need to fix. But the problem is sometimes the existing policies do not need to fix and your efforts to change them cause serious as well as unnecessary problems, as it is often the case in US-China relations. In the second place, the election of the incumbent party's candidate is also preferable because of the nature of the debate on the China policy in the US in presidential elections. History shows that the US-China policy tends to be a target of such harsh criticisms from the opposition party, no matter who is, the own, who is in power during the presidential election campaign, either Reagan or uh, versus Carter case, uh, Clinton versus Bush Sr., Bush versus uh, Al Gore, and, and so on and so forth. This is in part because China is a big country you have to pay attention to, and also because China has a different ideology 
and different political system and different level of economic development. As a big country, U.S. has to pay attention to China. As a country with different ideology and political system, it is politically correct to show toughness against China. Finally, the election of the incumbent party candidate is preferable also because of the impact of political succession on China-U.S. relations. For China-U.S. relations to work, officials on both sides need to develop good person-to-person relations with each other and also some tacit understanding in order to deal with various kinds of issues. These can be obtained after you are in office for a while. However, when the opposition party gets into office, the people that he brings into the government usually do not have these things. These people have been outside the government for a while, although they may have followed what is going on with China-U.S. relations in general and get a piece of information from here and there in particular. They do not really know what the whole picture and in sufficient detail. Neither do they have the same kind of personal personal relationship with their Chinese counterparts as their predecessors. And in a big hurry to get onto other things, and for various kinds of other reasons, their predecessors usually fail to brief them on the relationship adequately. As a result, when the new people get into office, often they do not know their Chinese counterparts as well as they should, and are not fully aware of the tacit understandings between the two governments. So they tend to cause, run into some communication problems, if not frictions, with their Chinese counterparts during the initial period of the relationship after they get into office. These three factors combine to make it almost certainly that whoever that whenever the opposition party candidate gets into the White House, China-U.S. relationship are heading for some kind of trouble. Usually, the trouble lasts for two years. Usually, uh, before they get back to normal. For these and other reasons, if we want to have a stable and less problematic relationship between China and the U.S., I trust uh, an unstable China-U.S. relationship is bad for the world. Hillary Clinton should be our choice. I'm not uh, uh, working for Hillary. (laughs) But anyway, uh, I think from the Chinese perspective, she probably is a better choice between uh, uh, her and and Donald Trump uh, because she's the incumbent party's candidate. Uh, I guess my time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you, and um, we've had a, a, a rich tour of China's perspectives on big picture questions of international order, about how its foreign policy works, and it's good to see that China is as prone to PR exercises and clunky foreign policy decision-makings as any other country, uh, and of course the big question of what direction US-China relations will go in uh, with a, with what is going to be a, a new president. Now we have time, plenty of time for questions. Um, there are two roving microphones, so if you could indicate if you'd like to ask a question, please keep a question short. No lectures, please. 
um, and I'll direct where the questions go. And if you, if you have a question for a specific panel member, please indicate that. Okay, thanks. First one down here and then there. Professor Wang. I think China is playing uh, a more and more active role in uh, constructing the global order, including the Middle East. But China's influence in the Middle East is quite limited as compared to many other countries. Uh, for instance, if we compare China's influence and interests, or not interests, but the influence uh, on the Middle East with that of the United States, or even Great Britain or France uh, or Russia, uh, China's influence is, is rather uh, limited uh, for several reasons. One is that we don't have enough policy tool, tools to influence, most policy instruments to influence the, uh, the, the situation in, in the Middle East. Uh, we don't have a military presence there. And, and we are, you know, secondly, we have very little knowledge about the, the, the region as a whole, especially the countries uh, uh, which are in trouble. Uh, quite a few Chinese are very much concerned about the situation in the Middle East, especially those who have uh, investment and trade with those countries. But if you ask ordinary Chinese what are the most important issues in China foreign relations, they will say South China Sea, Japan, uh, North Korea, very few of them will mention the Middle East. But I'm not very sad happy with that kind of answer. I, I think China has a, a lot of more and more interest in the Middle East at large. And uh, it is part, very important part of the current international order. But this, if I relate this with the current US-China relations, uh, as uh, Professor Jia just mentioned, uh, I think the top priority of the United States in foreign relations is the Middle East rather than China. China to the Obama administration is a long-term challenge, but not a short-term challenge uh, apart from the uh, South China Sea. Even in the South China Sea, there's little likelihood of an, uh, an actual military conflict. Uh, and China's top priority in the foreign relations is neighboring countries, especially uh, in, 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 in what we see uh, in, the China, in China's east, or two China's east, with, uh, with Korea, with Japan, with the United States, in, over the South China Sea, with other countries, uh, you know, neighboring countries in the region, uh, even including India. So China is playing an increasingly important role in constructing international order, but the top priority of China's foreign relations remains Asia, especially East Asia. And the back left. Hi, I'm Nathan from Monash. Um, China is always referred to as a civilization state, and embodied in that is the notion that the current government of the time isn't just interested in its citizens, but also advancing Chinese culture and the well-being of its diaspora around the world. Um, do you think that notion actually comes into play when handling issues like the South China Sea, uh, when overtly aggressive move has led to violent protests in, say, countries like Vietnam that have led to deaths and violence you know, to, directed towards the Chinese communities? Thank you. Well, I think the South China Sea is... Uh represents China's uh, 
response to the popular pressures in China, okay, and also to uh, 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 some uh, approach uh, advocated by uh, some sectors in 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 the Chinese government. Uh, uh, that is, uh, you know. Uh, the territorial and maritime interests uh, in the South China Sea uh, have been, uh, you know, ha- have been uh, managed in a way that at China's, at China's expense. Okay? Uh, many people, China has claimed the territories uh, within the Nine Dash Line for many, many years, since the 40s. Okay? Uh, when uh, some of the Chinese neighbors were not even independent at that time. Okay. Um, but, but then, uh, you know, because China was weak, because China uh, 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 had other priorities, so the Chinese government had not done very much in reclaiming what they had claimed uh, <coughs> over the years. And during the period, uh, some Chinese neighbors, uh, including Vietnam, Philippines, they have taken over some of the islands in the South China Sea. So to the Chinese people, uh, uh, you know, this is unfair. Okay? But during the 1970s, uh, Deng Xiaoping came up with this uh, idea that we should uh, sh- uh, uh, shelter, uh, shelve the differences and engage in joint exploration of the resources. Uh, people bought into this kind of argument because they believed that China had other priorities and China was too weak. But many, but years later, you know, China became stronger and, and also uh, uh, China, the, uh, their alleged activities on the part of Chinese neighbors uh, increased uh, in, in the South China Sea, including uh, exploring oil, uh, gas, and also occupy build up uh, some of the islands uh, they occupied. Uh, so the, some pe- people in the Chinese government argue that maybe we should do something about this. Uh, that, to some extent, expla- uh, expect, uh, you know, explain the Chinese uh, activism or assertiveness on the part, as, as some people, as it is reported uh, in the press. But to the Chinese government, uh, what China has done is legitimate. Uh, it hasn't exceeded what they had always claimed. Uh, uh, so in that sense, uh, uh, China uh, has not, uh, is not a revisionist power. Okay? Uh, also, what China has done, uh, other p- countries have done. Okay? Vietnam has claimed, I mean, in terms of building the island, uh, building artificial islands on, on, on atolls. Uh, Vietnamese had done, uh, Philippine, Filipinos have done, and also uh, in the East China Sea, uh, J- Japanese had, uh, has, uh, uh, Japan had built its own island, uh, and, and South Korea had built its own island. But the problem is, uh, you know, these uh, activities went unnoticed uh, uh, ex- outside the region. But then when China did it, uh, everybody paid attention. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with the rise of China and the scale uh, and the capability of China to build the islands in a big way. Okay. So uh, I think the South China Sea events should be understood in, uh, in this light. Uh, I don't think this is a way 
on the part of China to project its civilization or culture. Uh, rather, it's, uh, uh, it reflects the, the, the change in China's power and also perceptions on the part of the people in China about how to best protect their interests. Uh, hi, my name's Troy. I'm currently a student at Monash. Um, I, my question is, uh, Australia has often described itself uh, as a middle power or a regional power. Um, to what, how does China view Australia's place in the world and how important both economically and strategically is Australia to China and where do you see that role going in the future? And uh, this morning also some people find that uh, and in Australia, we're talking about China foreign policy, but none of us mention our relationship with this country. And um, <clears throat> whether they saw the people doubt whether China ignored the Australians' importance uh, in this region. And the first, uh, I think when we define the China, I think that at the very beginning, and the question talking about what kind of world leadership China can provide to the world. And that's really beyond most of the Chinese expectation. And I doubt in China and the majority of people expected the government to provide a, a, a leadership for the world. And uh, people think the Chinese government should focus on the domestic issues and don't waste the energy and the money and the resources for the world. So in, that's why by now the Chinese government is never talking about international leadership. And uh, even define the region. And China possibly define China as the Asian Pacific countries and certainly including Australia. But uh, if you ask the most uh, ordinary Chinese, we generally speaking define China as East Asian countries. So if we define China as East Asian countries, Australia is a country in the other region. It's not in the same region. So generally speaking, I think that the importance of Australian to China is not that important as our immediate neighbors, like Japan, like Vietnam, even Philippines. And uh, so these countries are so close to China. So the geographical distance and make the Australia and not a, cannot have that kind of impact on China like the, our immediate neighbors. Concerning the economy, and uh, in China, and uh, the government may concern this uh, strategic investment and uh, the mineral investment and this uh, major, uh, uh, this. Uh, uh, huge, uh, huge uh, economic uh, uh, relations or cooperation. But for ordinary people, and uh, they seldomly concern this thing. They think Australia is a good place and to send their kids there to study and to learn English and to purchase the, uh, what they, the, the uh, milk powder. And, <clears throat> and so they're, they're really different view about this country. And uh, you must, re, uh, must keep in mind that the Chinese economy is not only second largest in the world. China's economy is already and the 60% uh, uh, of the uh, U.S. And China already the uh, largest trade partner for about 130 countries. And the U.S. by now only have the, uh, uh, the U.S. Would, uh, is the largest trade partner only for more than 20 countries. So in that way, the trade with Australia is important and to China, but not that important like our trade with your country to your people. So uh, I remember uh, uh, years ago when we criticized our American policy toward China and uh, not gave enough attention to uh, China's uh, role, and then at that 
at that time, we we're always educated by American colleagues that they said, we have to take care of a relationship with over 150 countries, not only yourself. So I'm, my understanding that the currently the, our relationship, I mean the bilateral relationship between China and Australia, not, uh, not only influenced by the, uh, the econ economy, but also influenced by the uh, Australian government's uh, attitudes, and I mean uh, towards the military con uh, conflicts between China and the U.S. And the Americans are ally of the U.S. able to understand that, and uh, Australia have to uh, tilt toward the U.S. is also understandable, but that depends on how firmly the Australian stand at the American size, like the Japan or like North, uh, South Korea. If the Australian take the similar uh, policy like the South Korea, I believe our relationship can improve very fast. Professor Wang, quickly. My comment uh, on this issue is related to uh, the document I recently uh, read, which is the uh, Australian's uh, 2016 uh, uh, defense white paper. Uh, in that paper, I think China is, is referred to indirectly uh, as a as a, as a challenge to you to Australia's um, national defense or or or, or national security, I, I as a specialist uh, on the United States and on East Asia uh, at large, I understand why uh, some people in Australia see the situation this way, uh, especially against the background that you you are a strong. One of the strongest allies of the United States in the world. Uh, so, and your strategic thinking is influenced by the United States. But I also want to emphasize that, you know, probably in, in my own assessment, um, the South China Sea issue is uh, is uh, is not properly uh, dealt with in that in that. Paper. I think it, it, the, the problem of the South China Sea is somewhat exaggerated. I'm not saying this is not a problem, but I'm talking about you know uh, China's uh, actions and uh, uh, you know uh, America's policy. I think uh, uh, the, the the things are more complicated than it appears as simply a, a Chinese-U.S. strategic or geostrategic uh, competition. Uh, and as Jia Qingguo just mentioned, uh, China has its vested interest, vested interest in, Southeast, uh, in, 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 in the South China Sea, but there is very little uh, incentive for China to create some kind of spheres influence, uh, uh, asking other countries to join China against the United States, that kind of thing. It is more... I think China's interest is more driven by its needs to uh, uh, to protect itself. Um, but it is, you know, sometimes people misunderstand China's intentions. Uh, on our side, I don't think we have a better. Uh, we have a. We should we should have better interpretation of the situation to the outside world. Instead of uh, simply saying this is China's sovereignty issue, we. We, you know, uh, but to tell you the truth, it is very difficult to tell the Chinese people and the outside world what the nine dashed lines uh, mean in, 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 in terms of international law. 
because I, I think most Chinese see these nine dash lines as the territorial line between China and neighboring countries. Actually, this is not, not China's Chinese government's uh, position, but it is difficult to tell the Chinese population at large that the, you know, the nine dash lines uh, are simply uh, you know, the traditional uh, uh, historical line that doesn't uh, bind China uh, in its national security issues. I mean, uh, we have to do a lot of public uh, relations work at home before which we have more readjustment to our foreign policy toward the South China Sea. Yeah, I agree with uh, Professor Yan that uh, Australia uh, does not, uh, is not uh, as important as uh, 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 some other countries. Okay. Uh, in part because of the size of Australia population, but in part because uh, US, uh, Australia is a strong ally of the US. So basically you get the impression that if you can fix the US, you fix Australia, right? Uh, <laughs> having said this, I think Australia features larger uh, in the minds of the Chinese than uh, it actually is, okay? Uh, to the Chinese, Australia is the biggest country in the, in the South Pacific, right? Uh, it's the leading country in the South Pacific. But also, Australia uh, has uh, a big territory with unlimited potential, okay, uh, in terms of natural resources and that sort of thing. And also, uh, to many Chinese, uh, Australia is uh, some kind, is related to, the, to Europe, uh, Europe used to be very strong, or to the wide world, you know. <laughs> this is a you know, lingering uh, impression. And also, uh, Australia is, uh, uh, is actually has been quite active uh, in, in international affairs. You know, when you talk about G20, Australia is one of the, uh, one of the 20 countries, okay. So, uh, to, in, in the eyes of the Chinese, uh, Australia features larger than actually it is. Uh, you know, if you compare Australia population to other countries, it's a very small country uh, by world standards. Uh, so, but then to the Chinese, Australia features quite large. You know, they, if you talk to people, most people know Australia, but then uh, probably uh, even some, some larger countries like Nigeria or, uh, then, uh, or, or uh, even uh, you know, Indonesia, you know, they, they, would, they would probably think that Australia is strong, is more important than Indonesia to, to a lot of people in China. Uh, that, that's my impression. So Australia has, has done quite well in, in punching beyond its weight. <laughs> Thank you. So, so you're endorsing Hillary Clinton and Australian foreign policy. <laughs> two out of two, <laughs> Professor Jha. So in the back, so the gentleman who's standing with his hand, yep, just there, Matt, if you could get the mic. There. Sorry, no, no, sorry, sorry, not the one in the middle. Sorry, that one there. This is the slight problem of I've, I'm the air traffic controller and only I can see the map. So. My, my issue is just around, um, given that China is very interested in its relations with its neighbours, um, where's China's policy going in regard to the Mekong River and its impact on its neighbours at the moment? Okay, I try. <laughs> That's a very, Potentially a controversial. Specific. Yeah, very, very specific question. <laughs> They're too specific. <laughs> And um, 
I think this uh, um, currently China uh, Li Keqiang just uh, announced this uh, project to uh, de develop a joint program for the uh, countries along this river and with the ASEAN countries. So you find that they, we do not want to, uh, <clears throat> this policy, we want to apply to, with the ASEAN countries and uh, uh, almost for everything. That means uh, we do not want to have the China with a, a multiple, uh, uh, multilateral group to uh, have a bilateral discussion. We only want to have the uh, bi uh, bilateral discussion between China with related countries. So if this issue related only with one, one country, then China prefer have a bilateral. If related with two countries, so we have a trilateral discussion. So this, uh, um, uh, uh, the river uh, uh, problem, and mainly relate to uh, three countries, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, and, uh, um, and uh, the, the law. Uh, Laos, right? Laos. Laos, the three countries. So that's why there's a four-country project. And uh, I don't think there's any competition and, uh, against the U.S. If you're talking about the possible visit by the Obama to the uh, Laos in the uh, future, it's not because of this river, but because, uh, from my understanding, Americans uh, find that China has uh, uh, maritime disputes with uh, some ASEAN countries, and uh, certainly not a loss. So Americans concerned that uh, try to develop this uh, U.S.-ASEAN relationship, this uh, bilateral relationship, try to make the ASEAN countries uh, to provide more support to U.S. policy towards this region. And this is uh, the competition between China and the U.S. to uh, fight for the good relationship with ASEAN as a general. But the China's policy is very clear, and if it come come to the issue of a conflicts, any conflicts, and China want to have a, a decided whether have a bilateral or multilateral negotiation with the ASEAN uh, uh, members and decided the, who related to this issue. Thank you. Right, thanks. Uh, in the city. Yeah, um, so there's an adversarial relationship assumed between the US and China. Does this actually exist? And if it does, to what extent? Well, um, I think if we look at the you know security part of the relationship, um, the, you know we have differences over the South China Sea. We have differences over uh, military alliances between the United States and some other countries. But if we look at the comprehensive, uh, more comprehensively, uh, China and the United States are you know a big trade partners, and uh, we, are, 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 we, we we buy a great deal of U.S. Treasury uh, bonds, uh, and then you know mutual uh, understanding has been improving rapidly. So uh, although Judging Guo, uh, Professor Zhao mentioned you know implications of U.S. Uh, presidential election, the forthcoming presidential election, I'm not very much concerned about the outcome uh, because I think China is, is more uh, important in shaping the relationship. Uh, for instance, if we look, take a long view. Uh, I am just finished. I just finished writing an essay on the over 200 years of China-U.S. relations. And people usually divide this long uh, relationship into four periods. Uh, a period before 1911, uh, when uh, the, PR, the ROC, the Republic of China, was uh, founded. 
And then the second period was between 19, uh, 1911 to 1914, uh, uh, and 1949 when the People's Republic of China was uh, established. And then from 1949 to 1970, when China and the United States had, a, you know, had cold, cold war uh, and the confrontation. And the fourth period started in 1978 when China began to open uh, itself and uh, conduct reform at home. So actually, if we divide the U.S.-China relationship into these four uh, periods, China actually was more, China's internal politics was the greatest uh, variable rather than the United States. The Cold War, the end of the Cold War, uh, and the Second World War or the First Cold, uh, World War didn't change very much the, 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 the history of the U.S.-China relationship. So actually China is more important in shaping the relations than the United States. So if there is a fifth stage of U.S.-China relations, to me, it must be some changes in China itself. So uh, I don't think China and I say will be engaged into an actual war and an adversarial relationship. I think the relationship will be just like today. We have frictions, we have competition, we have cooperation, and in every single issue, China and the United States is engaged in some kind of competition and some kind of cooperation, even over sensitive issues like Taiwan, for instance. In the United States, no, the United States doesn't recognize Taiwan as a, as a country. It established relations with diplomatic relations with, with the PRC. Uh, and it will not support Taiwan independence. Uh, so this is a cooperation part. But at the same time, some people in the United States supported uh, you know, Taiwan separation from China, but that is not the mainstream. So, but it sells weapons to Taiwan with which we are not happy. So there are, uh, you know, even and over North, North Korea and over the South China Sea, over every single issue you see the cooperation part and also the competition part. And this relationship will endure for, for many years to, to come. So I don't think you can describe the U.S.-China relations by simply saying this is more cooperation, more uh, competition, or, or a, a single uh, uh, principle or single phenomenon. All right, in the centre here. Um, it, it appears that if, if we look at 20th century history, um, even now, um, one of the biggest problems with a, with a one-party system is when the leader um, effectively gets too much power, this sort of cult of personality theory. Um, if China has invariably proven that under a one-party system, um, growth and uh, liberalisation is achievable. Under President Xi Jinping, we have seen the censoring, further censoring of the internet, further censoring of the media, further censoring of art. He has made himself the head of key reform um, committees in every part of the Chinese government. I suppose my question is, is Xi Jinping ultimately a threat to the long-term growth of China? Small question. <laughs> well, I make a, a very brief comment on this. 
And actually, uh, the, the things are, have two sides. The, the, two, the story have two sides. On the one side, and for the reform of China, you really need a strong uh, leadership. Otherwise, you cannot pull forward any reform. And this country is really uh, 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 huge, and you really need a strong leadership to maintain the stability and the basic development, and then to solve all these social problems. On the other hand, like you said, that if you have the power uh, concentrated on one person, that's really dangerous, not only for China, for any country. So we need to uh, collective leadership, and that, that, uh, 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 what we argue about. So what you mentioned that, now they find that the Xi Jinping's uh, uh, personal uh, uh, power is increasing, and now the, 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 the Western media and the field worry about that. The question is that, what do you worry about? You worry about Xi Jinping ruin this country, or you worry about Xi Jinping take top policy toward neighbors, and what? And if the country ruined, ruined by this country, the country cannot adopt a strong policy to our neighbors, right? They're too weak. But so, what, what will happen? For the ordinary uh, Chinese, they hope the uh, uh, leadership can make this country strong. And meanwhile, from my understanding, most people want China to have a better relationship with the surrounding countries. And personally, I argue about the moral realism, I argue that uh, now we should, uh, if we have the capability to provide a kind of uh, uh, public goods for the uh, neighbors, and we should uh, compete with the U.S. for strategic partners. That means for friendship rather than for uh, uh, influence. And come to this issue, uh, what will happen? What happened to China? You find that the ultra-leftism and is gaining momentum since uh, last year. But then this kind of uh, momentum do not uh, uh, continuously without any troubles. And uh, up, um, after the... Uh, the gala of the eve of the Spring Festival, and the ultra-leftism uh, is reigning, uh, really gaining momentum, but then you find that they start to dwindle down. And that means that this society, after 30 years of reform, the society already has a kind of capability to correct this uh, unhealthy uh, political force and to uh, 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 adjust the society and uh, to the uh, right direction. So personally, I think the, uh, you, you find that now there's a more and more uh, uh, di discussion and the report on the media talking about uh, how to focus on the economic construction. So as long as we focus on the economic cons construction, and then I think this, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the leadership and, uh, is very possibly and provide the uh, uh, right, uh, uh, give the right direction. Okay. okay. Uh, I share uh, Professor Yen's uh, cautious uh, optimism, if I can say so. I think, you know, uh, across some things in China we are not very happy uh, with. Uh, uh, you know, each con every country has its own problem. And in China, uh, I think the, the vast majority of the people, are, you know, are still remember that the negative lessons China has experienced uh, in, in, in the past decades and, and so. For instance, the Cultural Revolution this year is the 60th, uh, 5th, 50th anniversary of the, uh, the Cultural Revolution. Uh, although that is not a very hot topic in China, if you look, you, you simply read the China, China's official media, but in private discussions, people refer to that the Cultural Revolution as a very negative thing. So 
very few people will welcome the coming back of the cultural revolution or any kind of uh, personality cult and so on and so forth. So we have experienced such uh, setbacks in the past. We are going, uh, going forward uh, and we are for more forward looking. And I think, uh, you know, uh, with reform momentums, with you know, you know for instance, uh, not only economic development is important, but social welfare, in uh, environmental degrade, uh, protection, and and public health. So many things we have to do, and that is not simply that cannot simply done by uh, concentrating concentration of, of, of political power. Uh, you know, we need a collective leadership. We more need more public participation. Uh, we more we we need more uh, more 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 opening to the outside world, and that general direction will not uh, will not be changed. Thanks. We've only got time for two more, and I appreciate many of you have had questions and are going to miss out. But there's one here and then one there, and I'm afraid that's it. So, so uh, James Leibold from Latrobe. Um, as we all know, governments across the globe have been dealing in the last couple of decades with the vexing challenge of transnational Islamic extremism. Um, after the Paris attacks, um, Xi Jinping came out and said that China too is a victim of Islamic extremism and warned against a double standard in the way the uh, the term terrorism is used. My question to the panel is to what extent is the threat posed by transnational Islamic extremism uh, credible in China? How, 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 how big is the, the exposure in China? Uh, or to what extent are recent acts of uh, politically motivated, motivated violence uh, a result of uh, domestic policies, say, in uh, the far west province of Xinjiang or Tibet? Well, uh, I think certainly China is a victim of uh, uh, extreme Islamic terrorism uh, against uh, the civilian population. Uh, we had incidents, uh, especially the killing or the massacre in the Kunming railway station. Uh, a lot of people get killed uh, and many people get injured. Uh, um, well, the Chinese government has uh, uh, also uh, taken a lot of measures to curb uh, uh, such kind of activities, just to prevent such kind of activities, just like uh, governments in other countries uh, have done. And also, uh, uh, it has, uh, uh, you know, attained some success in that regard by reducing the possible threats um, as far as uh, the policies uh, are concerned, uh, I think certainly there are rooms for improvement on the part of the uh, Chinese government as to how to uh, manage its uh, uh, ethnic, I mean, uh, the policies on ethnic uh, relations between the Han and the ethnic groups. Uh, how to uh, uh, protect the, the, the rights uh, and interests, legitimate interests on the part of the ethnic groups, uh, especially in the Xinjiang region. Okay. Uh, but it's a tough choice. You know. uh, 
balancing between uh, you know security uh, interests and also uh, the interest to protect the rights of every citizen of China. Uh, certainly, there are rooms for improvement as far as the policies are concerned. Okay. And final question. Hello, uh, my name's Ellen. I'm a La Trobe University student and my question relates to something Professor Wang was talking about earlier this evening. You said that China isn't totally satisfied with all the rules of the world order um, and that as they seek to grow more powerful, they may do more to try and change the existing rules. My understanding is the fear about what's happening in the South China Sea is that that is already happening and it's, it's happening one of two ways. One, by brute force, using power to overcome the existing order, and two, that China might just withdraw from the world order altogether if, if it sees as the rules as not being in their favour. So my question to you is how can China peacefully challenge... Well, how can they challenge the world order and how can they calm people's fears that they will not seek to bulldoze their way through the existing order or just withdraw unilaterally? I remember Yan Shitong, uh, Professor Yan just said, you know, it's very difficult to find a guide, a, a, an organizing principle to deal with everything you have in foreign relations. And then China's top priorities is domestic development. So seemingly there are some contradictions from the from security part of China's foreign policy and then economic part of the China's foreign policy. And it is very obvious that China, is not, as a very big country, pursues different goals in different uh, dimensions, in different uh, geographical areas. So on the one hand, China is very uh, 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 strong in defending its, its sovereignty over the South China Sea. And on the other hand, China wants to join the other countries in, in, in maintaining uh, the international order, especially international financial order. And then we, China is playing a very important role in providing uh, nuclear safety well, well, when, when developing its nuclear uh, power. So uh, we have very different goals in different areas, and, and then we have to deal with the, the issues separately. But if you, you see you know, some linkages, then of course China can not be, China should avoid being too aggressive uh, in certain uh, issue areas like the China, South China Sea, because if we seem single-mindedly pursuing uh, our goal in the South China Sea, then we may have to sacrifice some other goals. And that is the, for, for the top leadership to consider. So I, you know, present, presently we talk very much about South China Sea, but remember that China has a long history and, and you know, in, in, in the past, in several years ago, people were not fascinated about China's relations with the neighboring countries over the South China Sea. And China at that time was focusing on Japan. And then 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it was Taiwan independence that troubled China more. And then there was tensions between China and the United States over Taiwan. And much earlier, it was 
Vietnam and, and the Korean War and then Japan. So we have some moving targets. And I think given time, uh, the South China Sea will, will calm down. The issue with disputes will, 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 will calm down a little bit. And gradually in these few months, I think the South China Sea disputes have been quite uh, quietly and uh, uh, managed by the two countries between the United States and China. So I think if we only read the media, we'll have information from, from media, uh, then we have one, uh, one picture. And if we look at the the engagement between China and the United States over the South China Sea, the military-to-military -military relationship, then we see mechanisms that would prevent the, uh, the happening of some incidents that would rock the whole of our relationship. So I see you know, the, 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 the linkage between the South China Sea and China's goal other, elsewhere, but policy coordination is done quite successfully over the very top, uh, on the very top of the, uh, of the, uh, the leadership. One minute. Sure. Okay. Uh, very brief. And uh, now I think uh, most people focus on China's policy toward the uh, South China Sea, mainly because now we have the construction there. And it's a huge and, uh, very, uh, and at a high speed. But actually, I think uh, most people forget that the South China Sea issue is not uh, occurred and in the last two, two years, but it's a initial, it's a started from 2009. At that time, we have not changed the government, China foreign policy toward the neighbors, and they didn't change. And it's initiated by the Vietnam and the Philippines rather than by China. So China, you, you can see that China's response to their uh, challenge too, uh, too uh, uh, drastic. But then the question, the, the problem is initiated by the, uh, uh, the uh, Vietnam and the uh, Philippines. And come to the East China Sea, the same. It's not initiated by the problem over the Diaoyu Island, not initiated by China, but by Japanese government in <clears throat> uh, 2010 and uh, contain China's uh, uh, fish boats and the fish, uh, and captain, and then they nationalized the islands in two, uh, 2012. So question from my understanding now, China's policy towards China Sea and is a kind of a response to that issue. And uh, if China has a call on for the bilateral uh, negotiation, unfortunately, these principles do not accept it by ASEAN countries. Most of ASEAN countries say, no, you are too strong, I'm weak. And bilaterally, it's not in my uh, favor, and it will be in favor of you. And uh, so they said they want to have collect collective negotiation with China, so the problem cannot solve. Finally, I will say, and uh, ASEAN countries' attitude toward the China and uh, they claim they want to maintain the balance between China and the U.S., but actually, from my understanding, they do not want to see the serious uh, conflicts between China and the U.S., and also they do not want to see real cooperation between China and the U.S. When China and the confrontation between two guys are very serious, they worry about it, it may escalate to war. But when these two countries uh, can cooperate with each other, and then they feel that these two guys were dominating the ASEAN countries. So for them, there's a well uh, famous saying. They said that when the, I asked them what kind of relationship you want between China and the U.S., they said they just want these two countries to not conflict that much and do not cooperate very seriously. So I said why? They said that when the two elephants fight against each other, they, the grass will uh, suffer from that. 
Meanwhile, he said, the grass will also suffer if two elephants make love. <laughs> on, that, on that very vivid image, um, I'll have to uh, call this evening's panel to a close. I'm very sorry for those of you who've wanted to ask questions um, that you've not had the opportunity to do so. I think that there are so much that there is so much interest in what our speakers have been saying as testimony not only to the importance of the issues, uh, but to the extent to which their comments have, have pricked your imagination. Uh, as you all know, events like these don't happen by themselves. Um, and as the agit propaganda on the stage reminds us, um, tonight's forum has been a collaboration of Deakin University uh, and my own Latrobe. Uh, and so I would like to close by inviting uh, my co-conspirator, um, Dr. Cheng Pan, to the stage to express our collective gratitude uh, to the many people and organisations that have made tonight possible. So, Cheng, put down your camera. Okay, um, what three terrific and uh, inspirational and self-speaking uh, speeches, and uh, also what uh, a wide-ranging uh, set of questions from the audience. Uh, the lectures remind me of my years uh, at uh, Peking University. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, to be taught by Professor Wong and Professor Jiao. And uh, today, also for the first time, I, I listened to Professor Yen's um, talk. So I can claim that I'm a student of all three uh, great scholars uh, from China, uh, Chinese uh, top universities. And I know uh, it's getting late and I won't uh, be long, so that's why I have uh, 11 pages of speech. Uh, but the last 10, speech, uh, the last 10 pages will be blank, uh, so don't worry. Uh, I'd like to, as uh, Nick, uh, Professor Beasley uh, said, uh, these things uh, do not happen uh, out of a blue. So I'd like to acknowledge a few people and the institutions. Uh, without, the, without them, uh, we could not have such a wonderful night and a public forum. So firstly, uh, of course, I'd like to thank uh, the three speakers um, for their uh, informative and uh, thought-provoking uh, talks. And uh, secondly, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Gary Smith, uh, Deputy Vice-Chancellor, uh, Global Engagement at Deakin. Uh, he provided the support from the very beginning, and uh, uh, he also uh, gave uh, the welcome to, to the, um, and the introduction of our speakers. Uh, the, the age of the selfie. Well, this wasn't a selfie, this is a Yui. <laughs> Also, I'd like to mention uh, my head of school, uh, Matthew Clark. Uh, we are in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. And uh, if you are interested in uh, studying with us, uh, please uh, do make inquiries. Uh, our school also, uh, we have uh, um, Helen Andrew and Emily Barrett and Lisa Moore Wood. Uh, they helped arrange uh, many things over the visits of the guests. And this morning, uh, our Vice Chancellor, Professor Jen de Hollander, and uh, the Executive Dean of our Faculty of Arts and Education, uh, Bre Professor Brenda uh, Cheridan Nichenko, 
I hope my pronunciation is right. Uh, met and I welcomed uh, the guests, so I thank them as well. Um, of course, without my wonderful colleagues at La Trobe uh, Asia, Professor Bisley, and also Miss uh, Diana Heatherich, uh, this could not happen. This has been a really pleasant and enjoyable collaboration. I hope we can continue, uh, and I hope you can continue to provide the money. Uh, <laughs> so no no sugarcoating that. Talking about money, uh, I think I'd like to acknowledge the faculty of, oh, sorry, the foundation for Australian studies in China, uh, the FASIC, especially uh, the chairman, uh, Karen Hop-Good-Brong, uh, uh, and the executive uh, director, Ms. Uh, Sherry Gall. Uh, they have been re really generous uh, in supporting this event, and a series of events, actually, from Melbourne to uh, Canberra and uh, Sydney. Um, so, uh, last but not least, I'd like to thank everyone here and uh, thank you for coming uh, at uh, this, uh, this time. Probably you uh, for, have forgotten your uh, time with your family, uh, mm, a good meal. So, I hope uh, you enjoyed uh, the event and uh, thank, you very, thank you very much. Good night.